My name is Daddy Puss Rex, and I want to talk to y'all about love. Love in Corona times. to love in the time of corona a podcast all about love during COVID-19 so the restrictions have eased up a bit in Berlin restaurants are open I hear with 1.5 meter distancing going in place unfortunately though I'm not there so I'm still in an island that is very confused as to whether it's still locked down or it's not locked down uh, so that's me you're hearing the voice of Kate Checker usually formerly a comedian and now sitting in my mother's airing cupboard which is the room in the house where we in the UK um, keep our towels that's how to explain an airing cupboard and I did not envision myself age 30 years old uh, living in my mother's house or indeed I spent one of the days last week wandering around the garden uh, in my leopard onesie uh, that my mother made me when I was 17 to wear to music festivals. I did not envision that for myself. It's uh, It's been an odd one. It's been a weird transition from this whole corona time. It's, it really points out the flimsiness with which you rest the foundations of your life. It is, it's been an interesting one. I'm not mad at it, though. I'm not. I'm very in myself. I'm incredibly happy to be back in the UK which is unusual I'm not usually that happy to be here so that's been nice um but yeah I went from penthouse apartment Prince Lauerberg drinking blood orange mimosas to bloody living at home or for a while living in a mold house I've had a I've had a real roller coaster and yeah I've been trying to figure out I mean a lot of things but trying to come back to myself that's been uh, very important for me figuring that out now Trying to work out, you know, I'm trying to work out things that are about love, I think. I would not on the whole say I was someone who was very good at love, as though love is something. (laughs) As though love is um, an exam you take. I love, me personally, I feel very deeply. I love people very deeply. I feel a lot of love very deeply. I feel like I get hurt a lot um yeah I don't know I love very quickly um and I'm incredibly (laughs) forthcoming with my feelings and maybe you're not supposed to do that maybe you need to be a bit more withheld I don't know I'm trying to figure it out um so I thought for the for today's episode of me figuring it out, I would go and find some people who I really admire, some people who I all call friends, who are wonderful people, and ask them for their reflections about love. So help me figure out love. So you're going to hear the voices of them. But first, in the first part of today's episode, I thought I would read you my quarantine diary, because I landed in the UK and subject to UK rules, which were not official at the time, but now are, you had to take 14 days quarantine. So I quarantined in the house next door to my mother, and I kept myself a little quarantine diary, just like some notes I made each day. So I thought I would read you that for the first bit, because at the end of last episode, I dropped this bombshell that I was um, leaving the country, leaving Berlin. So I thought that I'd start this episode with that, a little reading of this of my little corona quarantine diaries because my mother is uh, in the high risk group because she's over 70 so I had to quarantine away from her and then I thought we would hear the voices of three people Berlin based who I very much admire the first of which Jupiter 
who I met at a mutual friend's birthday a year ago. The second, Daddy Puss Rex, the indomitable. Indomitable, who I met through comedy. And finally, the wonderful, incredibly smart, Edna Bonhomme, who I met through Rachel. <laughs> Shout out to Rachel, all the way in the US of A. And a member of Black Lady Brunch Club, which is a very important club. You can probably guess the criteria that you need to fulfill to be in it. And I asked these three people if they would send me their reflections on love during this time because I am invested in and I trust their beliefs and the judgments and it will help me work out some things. So that is how this episode's going to go. Um, but first you're going to listen to me and my quarantine diary. So enjoy and uh, yeah. Lots of love to you all out there. The first of May. Home. So many words have been written about that word, what it means, what it is supposed to mean, what it often does not end up being. So many words that I feel I can skip them here now and tell you that I returned home. It was the 1st of May, which is a poetic day in its own right, for the rights of the workers and the pagan festival of Beltane, and I boarded a flight and left an unusually quiet Berlin to its own devices and headed home. I had worried about the journey, but actually it was the easiest one I have ever made. The Stansted Express, the connecting underground to Paddington, and the train to Bath were all empty. The UK is on pause. It is not so much the eeriness of a ghost town, but the uncanniness of a futuristic one. A space station in a far-out distant galaxy. High-vis work as the only life force. It felt too ominous to take photos or to film it. I wished to pass through like a shadow, concealing my shame. Or perhaps it was London's shame, for she is not usually so bare, so empty. She looks unfinished and awkward without her people. The train departs, and London is gone in minutes, and then it's houses, and then fields. It is that ever-changeable April weather, the seasons do not know that it has turned to May. It is sunny, then the sky's grey, and it rains, and once we hit Bath Spa, and there's an hour to wait, it hails. My train from this point onwards is the busiest one yet. I try to keep my distance and alight at Bradford Naven to no pick-up. Just the fifteen minutes walk through the wood, where I'll pass a whole family in my mask and an elderly lady with her dog. Both will thank me, as the train conductor did, not stopping to check my ticket, and I wonder if they all mistake me for an essential worker. Although my direction bears home, I am actually going to take the few steps further and enter into the house next door a house with which my mother's house shares a wall, a house I knew well from the inside as a child, when the old inhabitants and their five daughters would invite me round to play. There's been new owners since, but they've abandoned it for a life in Switzerland. And if you want to imagine what kind of people they are, then imagine the kind of people that move to Switzerland on the grounds that it is better run and more clean. Not this house, though. They left in such a rush that a tap was left on sometime in the winter, and my mother, the keeper of the spare keys, entered in February to an upstairs covered in mould. The curtains hang with it, the carpet is stained damp, the master bed has pieces of plaster from where the ceiling has collapsed. When the wind blows, it makes a whistling sound. There are different kinds of selfishness, like the kind that means you leave an empty house without tenants, let it fall into disrepair, and that looks bad in a time like this when there are many without homes. And then there is the type of selfishness that propels you, in all ways privileged and comfortable, to make the unadvised, unessential journey from Berlin back home. What is essential? I don't know if mental health counts. I just knew I couldn't keep feeling as bad as I did. I arrived mid-afternoon, and in one way it is the same as always. The first question from my mother was, Tea? It is this cultural signaling so ingrained in this island for everything. After my father had fallen sick in Tanzania, a month-long trip that left me emotionally beaten, 
I flew into Birmingham Airport to the words, We've put the kettle on, and I almost cried. I legitimately could feel the tears welling up inside me. It's those things that make me feel home. She carries my tea up in the garden and rests it on a table close to the fence, and then she starts her journey back to the house I go to collect it, staying always two metres away. This will be the pattern for the next few days, I come to realise, her leaving bowls of food, venison stir-fry, roast chicken, jugs of Jersey milk, sometimes a lamp or coconut oil. She'll text me to inform me when the stuff is there and I can make requests, like, I'd like my yoga mat, please. Once the stuff has travelled across the fence, it doesn't go back. It is one-directional only. On the first evening, I'll open the window of the front downstairs room, and in three trips, my mother will post pillows and duvets and my quilt she made me for my 21st birthday through the window. A sheet for the mattress on the floor, which is where I will sleep each night, only climbing the stairs to the mouldy first floor to use the loo. First night, I climb there barefoot using the torchlight on my phone and encounter a large spider of the sort with a body the size of a Malteser. I step over it on my way there and back. It has more right to inhabit this previously empty house than I do. The next night I spot a slightly smaller spider hanging from a thread behind the sink. Again I do nothing but leave, descend the stairs, and climb into bed. 4th of May The third night the large spider is back, and this time scuttling to hide behind the bin. I perch on the toilet and flex my feet out, and talk to her. Look, just don't, like, run around or make any sudden movements, OK? I feel like that's a fair compromise. After all, I'm barely upstairs on account of the mould, and she's been here much longer than me. I wonder if it was living in India that gave me a taste for less than comfortable dwellings. Me and my Norwegian roommate at university in Delhi both agreed that the prisons in Scandinavia were probably nicer. The dormitory walls were so thin you could hear everything going on next door. Bedbugs in some of the dorms, too but surely nothing as bad as that hostel in Cambodia. I woke up one night from the little amount of bugs they could feel on my skin and shined my phone light to watch their fat little bodies swarming the mattress, sliding down the sides. I remember leaving the room to sleep in the hammock outside. But perhaps it was before then, because this is not the first time I've lived with mould, a place I lived in at 19 years old, with my boyfriend and three other housemates, a former council flat in Whitechapel in East London. Those blocks that were built when they had given up on the idea of decent housing for the poor. So structurally unsound and prone to damp as our bedroom was, situated underneath the balcony of the apartment above. In the corner a dark patch of mould appeared. I am not sure quite why I, who at that time did not work but spent most days in bed, did nothing to stop the spread of this mould which slowly increased until it was over a metre in size covering a huge part of the wall. I remember the day a drip landed on the duvet cover, and I looked up to see the ceiling wet with damp and the first formations of it. It is not good to live with mould, and I can attest to the coughs lasting many months that my asthmatic boyfriend and me had that winter, till eventually confronting our landlord, who supplied a tin of mould remover, and I spent a day scraping it off the wall and painting on this solution. I mourned the mould after that. I had been pretty much bed-bound, not through any physical exertion, though I had had a bad case of the swine flu the summer before. It was more like an engulfing depression, and I only really perked up for the takeaway Nando's that my boyfriend would bring to bed each day. I was twenty years old and waiting to put in my application to university after having missed my first choice the year before. There were a couple of weeks I lived in that squat in Brixton, and then the council found out, and the guy I was seeing at the time had to break in and get the rest of my stuff. And I lived in a kind of squat, with my friend and namesake in a former kindergarten on the New Kent Road, and recently someone told me they remember the day the power went off for the whole street, when the landlord who was illegally renting it to them broke in and tried to cut off their electricity supply. There was the freezing march that a few of my old friends from school joined my mate Tim on his newly bought boat to help him sail down from the Midlands to London. It was still a shell at that point, but we had done it up, relying completely for warmth on the wood-burning fire. I remember one morning waking up to find the fire had gone out and there was ice on the inside of the windows. It takes a superhuman effort to crawl out of the covers on those days, pull on clothes and make tea. I've slept in beds filled with many different people, on smooth hard floors like my Indian friends do. I couldn't sleep, really. There's some things my soft, weak, European-raised body can't do. I've slept on a luggage rack, missing slats, in general class of an Indian train. I've slept in many a stranger's house across the world. 
When I moved back to Berlin in 2018, I lived in a box room, like a cupboard, complete with a light switch that was outside the door. I spent a few days of my quarantine sleeping on a sofa alone in a studio in Weissensee. I wonder, is it all these different places I've laid my head to rest that make me fine with the idea of spending a week or so in the downstairs mouldy house of next door? I have a garden, and I sit and converse through the fence to my mother, whose garden by comparison looks like a paradise, the pond and the fruit trees, the flowers and raised beds. 6th of May The spider is there the fourth night, but not the fifth, and I wonder about it. I fall into an easy routine, doing yoga in the kitchen, which has underfloor heating, and lying in the sun in the garden for even on the forecasted cloudy days the sun seems to break through. My mother delivers food by walking out the garden to the small table on her side of the fence and placing it there. I wash the dirty crockery and put them on the same table, advising my mother to wait at least eight hours before retrieving it. We text about food and sleep and have small conversations. She arrives back one day in her beekeeping outfit to inform me the bees have swarmed. The bees, it seems, have no sense of restrictions on their freedom. There will be less honey this year. 9th of May The spider doesn't return for three more nights, perhaps sensing that this house is no longer purely their domain. Instead, on the nights of the full moon, I stand or sit in the back garden and gaze at it, marvelling in its light and the brightness of Venus in the northeast. Slowly, slowly. The strictness with which we abide by the rules begins to loosen. I come over to my mother's garden for a social distance tea party that happens to coincide with VE Day rather than be in celebration of it. It's nice. Three friends of my mother's all in retirement age talking about their lockdown rituals. As always, as always in Britain, the conversation on childhood holidays reveals class backgrounds. It is always here about class, and the longer I spend away from it, the more I notice it. 10th of May. Two days before I left Berlin, when in fact the plan was to not leave Berlin, I cycled down the towpath of the canal to meet my friend Mkla. It had rained heavily, so hard it had forced me to stop on the way and take shelter under a balcony. And then the rain eased, I continued with wet thighs and hair. And then the sun broke out, and everything glittered, and I sat on this bench on the canal and waited for Mkla, who came with fresh ginger tea. And we talked, and it was then when my intuition, my gut, and everything could fight it no longer, and I said to him, I have to go home. And that was the decision. Why so hard? I had to go home. That evening I called my mother for the final time and booked the flight, and 36 hours and 50 euros later I flew. 14th of May I spent yesterday in the slowest way possible, making many trips, taking my stuff into my mother's. I carry clothes and books and bits of kitchenware I've sequestered during the last days. I wash my bedding and hang it out to dry. I do yoga one more time in the kitchen with the underfloor heating. I prop the mattress up against the wall. I have slept well here, every morning taking my temperature check for any incoming fever. But no fever, no cough. Considering the desolate journey back, devoid of people, it would have been a miracle if I had caught it. But precautions, just in case. I was alone for a long time I got the opportunity to reflect a lot about things I've historically would say I don't have the best of relationships I feel like I've been very regularly made to feel like I'm quite difficult to love and I do wonder sometimes if that has to do with the body I inhabit and how my emotions are perceived. Maybe it is just me. Maybe I'm terrible. You never know. So part of that was returning home to somewhere I felt safe 
Um, and I have felt a lot of better since I've been here and I've been able to work on myself in a lot of ways and calm down in a lot of ways, which has been really nice. And I've been really happy, actually. There have been insanely moments of insane joy the last two weeks. I've been very, very happy. So that's good. It doesn't make it sound like that now when I'm chatting to you from underneath the Maduve. But I think it's interesting how different bodies move around different space and I also think that changes what love can mean for people or how easily they can access it. And Edna, at the end of this episode, has done an absolutely stunning recording. It's so beautiful where she talks about home and where she's from and safety and all three of the people I asked, Jupiter, Daddy Person, Edna, all talked about safety. And I think that's something to do with the bodies that we inhabit. And they all talked about community. Um, and I have historically, when I struggled to know what I think about something or how to figure something out, I figured myself out through the opinions of others and the voices of others. And that's why I wanted to invite these people to talk about it. Uh, so next up, we have Jupiter, who goes by Vanessa Jupiter when in drag in Berlin. Um, and you can see them perform in Berlin and read out on Instagram Live at 4pm every Sunday, I believe. Um, and they're wonderful and they're great. And I hope you enjoy the things they have to say. Three years ago, I read the book All About Love, New Visions by Bell Hooks for the first time. When I read this book for the first time, many seeds were planted into my brain of trying to understand better how love could become a practice for change in my life. How love could become not simply a feeling, not simply an action, but also a guide. During the lockdown, I decided to read All About Love New Visions by Bell Hooks for the second time. And the amount of knowledge in the book that I have managed to incorporate into my life over the last three years was impressive to me. I didn't remember that so many things that Bell Hooks says are things that I started, that I probably learned from the book and that I started applying within the last three years. Love requires honesty and confronting people honestly and working towards positive change in order to spiritually grow yourself and the other person is a central aspect in loving relationships. I went to Brazil for the first time in very long in the beginning of this year, and I have a family member with whom I needed to have a long discussion because I needed to open myself with a lot of honesty in order to try and grow a loving relationship. This family member, a few days later, asked me, Do you love me? And I saw myself forced to respond with honesty. I don't know. Because I am still trying to make the relationship one where we can grow each other's spiritual growth. And until I'm there, I do not know if I can cling to love. I think it is possible to love people by making myself more available, by making myself more honest, by being open. <sighs> 
During the lockdown, I decided to grow my drag performance career into the internet as most drag performers have, and I started doing live streams where I read texts that speak to me. Obviously one of the texts was Bell Hooks, All About Love, New Vision. And today, earlier, was the last time that I read Bell Hooks in the live stream. And I read the chapter about spirituality, where there's a lot of talk about community. And this is something that I have been thinking a lot about during the lockdown. I want to create more community. I think that community building is one of the things that I have always been best at. And at this moment, I cannot stop thinking of how much I want to find a way that would be healing to create community around me more. Create spaces in which people can meet each other in a caring way. Spaces where people can be honest. The reason why the talk about community comes specifically in the chapter about spirituality to me is very obvious. Spiritual places where people come together are places where love needs to thrive. Places that build community are places where love needs to be put into action. Because otherwise, what is the point of community? And if not to create these types of spaces, what is this point of spirituality? So I have been thinking a lot about the future and about how to create these types of spaces. I do not get along very well with online presence for myself. So I, as much as I appreciate that a lot of things are growing out of this, I want to continue live streaming after this. Because I do love live streaming readings, I cannot stop craving to go back to spaces where we see each other in person. That is extremely important in my personal life. I miss touching people. And when talking about love in times of isolation, it is very easy to go into sex. And I think that sex plays a very important role in most of our lives and in the way that we experience connection. Because of it, isolation has made me connect with my body in a different way. And something mildly unexpected came out of it. I haven't used male gendered language for myself in quite a few years. But within isolation, where I see myself without the filter of so social interactions, I, I see it very clearly within myself that male language will never work for me. And every day that I wake up with an isolation, the more confident I am in saying out loud, I am trans. I am not, nor have I ever been a man. And my relation to my body is changing. Through that understanding and this might be the beginning of a new process because now I have a new relation to my body and something new might come. And when I treat myself, I must respect myself, I must be open, 
and I must be honest and I must take care of myself with as much love as I possibly can. Thank you. Yay, Jupiter, thank you so much for that, for the sharing of that. And I think that's, this time has been so, has given so many realizations to so many people. And I think that's like, you know, moments of realization. And in a way, I feel like, yeah, it's sort of a time of like evolution involving and so on. And continuing on with that theme, the next um, part of this episode is from the wonderful Daddy Puss Rex, who I met doing comedy. We've shared a stage twice, three times in Berlin. I hope in the future we will share stages again. They are a poet, they are a comedian, they are a yoga teacher, um, and they are great and wonderful. And I'm happy our paths crossed. And I don't nearly need to introduce them anymore because they can very much speak for themselves. So enjoy. Up next, Daddy Puss Rex. Hello and welcome to my recording for Kate's awesome podcast. My name is Daddy Puss Rex. My pronouns are they, them. And I'm here to talk about love. Um, yeah, I'm here to talk about the various forms of love um, and how they manifest themselves, how I experience them. Um, I guess to start off, I will preface this by saying that both my sun sign, which is Taurus for all you astros out there, and my moon sign, um, Libra, are both ruled by the planet Venus, Venus is, of course, the planet of love and beauty. And my rising sign is in Leo, which means, well, I got an ego. So self-love is definitely um, a topic. So what can I say about love? Um, well, first and foremost, I guess I wanted to break this down into the different kinds of love that I experience. Romantic love platonic love, community love, self-love. I guess I'll start with the easiest, moving from easy to most complicated, at least for me. Recently, I have found love in Corona times on Instagram. <laughs> My most recent uh, partner, boyfriend, um, we met each other on Instagram. Uh, he reached out as a result of me posting that my top surgery, which is a mastectomy for those who don't know, um, gender confirmation surgery for, um, female to male transgender people, except that I'm not a male. I'm pangender. Oh my goodness. This is super complicated already. Anyway, so my top surgery was canceled due to Miss Rona. I knew this was a possibility. My original date was on the 29th of April, right in the midst of the pandemic. Also, I'm aware that I have like a 10 minute timeline on this. So I'm going to try and cram in as much as I can in those 10 minutes. Good luck to you, Kate, on the editing front. So, um, so he messaged me out of the blue. Um, kind of so, sort of offering his services as a clothing designer for designs that he made for himself that were helpful during his transition period before surgery. And we met and we spoke for, I think, four hours in total. And then we hugged. And during the hug, it was then that it kind of clicked. And... We've been together ever since. Uh, we work faster than lesbians in that regard. Um, his name is Emra, and he's adorable. Uh, my connection to him feels timeless, like as though our love and our connection has always existed um, throughout the space-time continuum. Um, the second person, I guess... I guess, uh, I'm not, it's not even an I guess, I am romantically 
involved with is a beautiful, beautiful human by the name of Camille. And Camille and I um, have been dating for about seven months. Uh, They did the Capricorn calculations on that, in fact. And it's been such a beautiful journey. And, you know, I never kind of necessarily envisioned myself as a polyamorous person. And, you know, when you try to explain to people what polyamory feels like, it's not like one love is better than the other. They're just different kinds of fucking love. You know, the same that oranges are different to eggplants, but I wouldn't, you know, the purpose of an eggplant is not the same purpose that an orange serves. So how could you ever go about comparing them? In any case, the beautiful bond that I have with Camille Camille is an African heritage person, and so my connection to Camille feels familiar, if not familial. This, too, is a very old feeling, sort of like ancestral roots interspersed with Afrofuturistic sprinkles, is how I would best describe the feelings of that romantic configuration. Uh, The next type of love that I want to talk about is my platonic love, for my best friend, best friend doesn't even capture the scope with which I love this next human. His name is Bard, and the love I have for Bard is absolutely fucking cosmic. We are exactly the same slash exactly opposite in every conceivable way. He is the antimatter to my matter, and I have learned so much about myself and others through loving him in a way that I did not know was possible in a platonic configuration. The next love that I want to bring up is community love. And the love that I guess can be used as a proxy for family love. Um, I don't have a great family background. I think at best... It would be described as estranged, and I'm actually okay with that scenario. But, you know, community love represents my chosen family, and that comes with, you know, all the highs and lows and warts and all. Um, And this is the family that I choose to love unconditionally, because if it weren't for my community, I would not be the badass, radical, loving queer that I am today. And community love has absolutely shown me the beauty and the magic of queer love. I do have to somehow say is that sometimes I feel as though I have more love for the queer community than the queer community has for me. Do white queers love, accept, and understand me as a black queer body? Not sure when many even don't even understand the implications of being white in a white supremacist system. Do cis queers love, accept, and understand me as a black queer trans body? Also not sure when transphobia is sneaky and insidious, showing up often uninvited and when you least expect it. So, I don't know. Do I love my queer community community more than it loves me? On paper, I surely do. The next type of love I want to kind of talk about is the biggest and by far the scariest at least for me and the most complicated love affair that I have and that is self-love uh yeah self-love because well you can't fucking break up with yourself now can you and it is much easier to love other people than one's own self You can project onto other people. Some might buy you gifts or do stuff for you. Some might even be really, really good at sex. And Audrey Lord knows that I have conflated orgasms for love on more than one occasion. And it is much easier to defer or use a proxy for the love that we should actually be giving to ourselves through other people. So... You know, but loving oneself wholly and fully means to love all of our parts, to love them, to accept them, to forgive them, to caress them the way that we did, that we would with our own best friend. It's not easy, though. And all of the memes in all of the Internet across the world don't make it easier to love parts of us that are spiky and weird, the bits that are buried deep, parts unknown, the parts that are rare and considered 
ugly or hurtful, even harmful, you know. But despite all of these gnarly bits, you and I, each and every one of us, is inherently worthy of love just for being fucking born. I know, sounds kind of radical, but it's that simple. Simple, but not easy. All that I ever needed in life is right here before me, and she's mine, oh mine. Brighter than diamonds, she's heavy like gold. Queen of my castle. She's queen of my soul. Have I made myself clear? Do I have to stand up and shout it right in your ear? Kimberly's mine. So stay clear. Thank you, Daddy Piss, for that. I love the idea that I am worthy of love simply for being born. I think I have historically always... Um, I've, I've thought that I that's not a thing. I don't know. I feel like everyone deserves clean water. I don't know if I felt like everyone deserves love, but maybe they do. I, um, I told my mom this the other day. And it's a good African proverb that I read, I think on Reddit of all places, um, which is that the child that is not taking care of the village will burn it down just to feel its warmth. And I thought that was a good proverb, a good analogy for how, I don't know, for what the desertion of love can do. Um... Sorry, don't worry about me. I'm very fine. It's very okay. Um, so this final part of the episode, it's super beautiful. Edna did a wonderful job. I'm super thankful to have her in my life as a friend. She is an academic, a writer, an activist, and she has done a wonderful job with this piece. She's edited it. She has put all the sounds in and the music and the textures and the flavors and you can feel it and it's beautiful and I think you're going to really enjoy it. As always, you can find me at Kate Checker on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter or you can email me at loveinthetimeofpodcast at gmail.com which is insanely too long for an email address. I have realized... So that's our episode for this week, um, and enjoy. My name is Edna Bonom, and I'm recording for Love in the Time of Corona on the 16th of May, 2020. Epidemics invite a host of feelings to arise, sometimes personal and often very political, with some people having an intimate connection that stems from old memories. The novel coronavirus, popularly known as COVID-19, has elicited old and ongoing feelings for me about how I live and survive and the social contours of a pandemic. I was born and raised in Little Haiti, a neighborhood situated 15 minutes north of downtown Miami. This was a place where brightly colored homes were saturated with bedding fig trees, stray chickens, and men playing dominoes in their yards. The neighborhood was home to Veyo, a Haitian language radio station 
that connected the news about immigration and politics in Haiti. In some ways, this was an enclave echoing the traffic of Port-au-Prince and the smells of conch salad from Gonaive. In the midst of living in Miami, a beautiful paradise of palm trees, gleaming modernist buildings, and beautiful beaches, there was an underclass of people who were perceived to be ill. In 1981, my father took a boat from northern Haiti and migrated to the United States. Two years later, in 1983, my mother followed the same seaward path. They joined other working-class poor Haitians in Miami, doing manual tasks as day laborers and eventually working in the sanitation and textile factories. HIV-AIDS emerged as a modern-day pandemic at the time throughout major cities in the U.S. beginning in 1981 and the wave of Haitian immigrants were erroneously deemed responsible. That meant that little Haiti, where I grew up, was deemed a no-go zone, and the fear and trepidation for being associated with a pandemic was mired in broader issues about racism, migration, and class. For my parents, being Haitian and poor meant that they could not rent an apartment other than the little Haiti. And being Haitian during the HIV-AIDS epidemic meant that my family was relegated to living in a modern-day ghetto. Their migration story and the ongoing HIV-AIDS epidemic of the 1980s meant that the working-class Haitians, such as my parents, were focused on one thing, survival. So for many Black Americans, or Black people like me, the United States was not a place made for Black people like me to love or dream. I currently live in Berlin, Germany, with my partner. We are shielded from the massive inequalities of the United States, where I'm from, and the nascent surge in COVID-19 infectious rates in the United Kingdom, where my partner is from. We have relative privilege as people living in the global north who have employment, health care, and housing. And during this period of social distancing, we have exercised strength, love, and care with each other, despite the growing uncertainties during this pandemic. But living in Europe does not remove me from the outright murder of black people in America. Because white men can't police their imagination, Claudia Rankin once wrote, black men are dying. But it's not just black men. It's Sandra Bland, Rakia Boyd, Breonna Taylor, so many women, trans, gender. At the height of the Black Lives Matter movement, the Jamaican-American poet Claudia Rankin lamented, the condition of black life is one of mourning. In the United States, most people are unaware of the extent that state violence can cost black people their lives, whether it is Trayvon Martin, a black teenager who was murdered by a vigilante, or Sandra Bland, a black woman who died under police custody. The gruesome reality of black life is precarious. Five years later, during a global pandemic, Rankin's morbid aphorisms still ring true. Today, the specter of black death weighs heavy on my thoughts as the coronavirus rages. This has been predicated by analyzing and inspecting global trends, reading about the reproduction rates of COVID-19, and the increased death tolls that disproportionately impacts Black people. On the surface, the data creates a sense of abstraction, which highlights a condition of life which also points to new uncertainties, new normals. For those who are not on the front lines or those who have not lost a loved one, The numbers anonymize the experience of the disease, leaving one to experience the pandemic through sound bites, government decrees, and urban sirens. The aesthetics of data has circulated images of global pause, of social life, closure of cinemas, restaurants, and schools. Plazas, which once served as a meeting space for lovers, are left abandoned while digital spaces are being reconfigured for family gatherings, workout sessions, and book clubs. Courtship and intimacy are evolving, metamorphosizing, and even tantalizing. The internet has become the ambient space for media, anxiety, and social games. At the same time, the markers of black death have not gone away. They are amplified and persisting because of the compounding crises deeply rooted in colonial structures, haunting the bones and souls of black folk. There are many reasons why black communities are disproportionately being impacted by coronavirus according to a range of experts I've spoken to. But one of the main reasons have to do with historic disparities between access to healthcare 
education, information, and government resources in Black communities compared to predominantly white communities. This is due, as many commentators have noted, to the social vulnerabilities that Black people face, being less likely to have health care, being more likely to be essential workers, being more likely to have insecure housing, being more likely to be incarcerated, and being less likely to receive adequate care. Care appears on the surface to be a fantasy obstructed by the perpetual and intergenerational transmission of trauma, poverty, and discrimination. Yet in the midst of a historic pandemic, Black people are witnessing the death of their kin in the face of the callousness of the powerful. Racism reinforces physical hardships, which are predictable outcomes of a society and a world that devalues and lacks care for Black life. In the recent cascades of Black death surrounding the outright murder of a 25-year-old man from Georgia, Ahmad Arbery, and the murder of Breonna Taylor, we have seen the index of racial violence present one layer of death showing the failure of white imagination. These modern-day lynchings are state-sanctioned or judicial cover-ups, and they are part of the specter and lifeline of America's malfeasance hastened by a global health crisis, leaving many black people incensed. Racism is the barometer of our ability to live. I survived, but over the years I have learned that survival is not enough. How do we express radical subjectivities, radical love, radical care, that unsettle these discourses of pain and suffering? Black feminist theory and practice provides a cartography for healing since it is grounded on practice that creates archives, sustaining caring alliances, and exercising the erotic. At the core of moving beyond survival is excavating the cartographies of joy where black women, transgender folk, and gender nonconforming people narrate and celebrate their burning desire to strike back the deep chaos of this world. Love is stitching together the personal and the political. Love is about practicing hope amidst despair. How do we practice that radical love towards Black life today? It means creating that tapestry of Black feminism, the Black radical tradition, and creativity. Dr. Brittany Cooper, cultural theorist, author, professor, and Black feminist, describes her version of feminism. I'm a black feminist, capital B, capital F. I'm unapologetically black and I'm unapologetically a feminist. And look, depending on what circles you're in, it's hard to be both those things at the same time. But I think that being both those things is the thing that will save us. Black feminism is my love language. Black feminism acknowledges the historical pain while also creating a roadmap for freedom. Today, as the COVID-19 pandemic rages, we can do so much through cybergenetic technologies and by taking intersectional approaches to combating health inequalities. That means universal basic income, Medicare for all, addressing the climate crisis, putting love into action. The practice is not merely focused on suffering, albeit well-documented, but envisioning and erecting freedom. Black radical love is a collection of labor actions designed to dismantle the trauma that we continue to witness. For some, it might encompass the bravery of Harriet Tubman, leading enslaved people along the Combahee River to emancipation. Or maybe it's writing a poem the Black poet June Jordan wrote in the poem for my love, quote, How do we come to be here next to each other in the night when are the stars that show us our love inevitable outside the leaves, flames, usual in darkness, and the rain falls cool and blessed on the holy flesh." End quote. On the other hand, love means unveiling ourselves to the world. As James Baldwin wrote, quote, love takes off the mask that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within, end quote. Love is listening and finding that radical hope. It means going into the gateway between one world and the next, finding the dead, excavating them, and imagining another world, and fighting for that world. This radical hope can be found in Audre Lorde, who also wrote, quote, 
the work and history of black women was less than a vapor. It has served me as fire in the eye zone of uncomprehending eyes of white women who see in my experience and the experience of my people only new reasons for fear or guilt, end quote. Love is a fight for full abolition, and as Charlene A. Carruthers has written in her 2018 book, Unapologetic, black love and liberation is predicated on our curiosity. It is a freedom fighting that entails a feminist, queer, and anti-capitalist politics. I have come to believe over and over that what is most important to me must be spoken, made verbal, and shared, even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood. That the speaking profits me beyond any other effect. I am standing here as a black lesbian poet, and the meaning of all that waits upon the fact that I am alive at all, and I had not thought to be. Less than two months ago, I was told by two doctors, one female and one male, that I would have to have breast surgery and that there was a 60 to 80% chance that the tumor was malignant. Between that telling and the actual surgery, there was a three-week period of the agony of an involuntary reorganization of my entire life. The surgery was completed and the growth was denied. But within those three weeks, I was forced to look upon myself and my living with a harsh and urgent clarity that has left me, even now, still shaken, but much stronger. This is a situation I know faced by many women, by some of you perhaps here now. <clears throat> but some of what I experienced during that time has helped to elucidate for me much of what I feel concerning the transformation of silence into language and action. In her cancer journals, Audre Lorde wrote, quote, For those of us who write, it is necessary to scrutinize not only the truth of what we speak, but the truth of that language by which we speak. For others, it is to share and spread also those words that are meaningful to us, but primarily for all of us. It is necessary to teach by living and speaking those truths which we believe and know beyond understanding. Because this way alone we can survive by taking in part a process of life that is creative and continuing, that is growth. End quote. Love must challenge power with retrospection and vision. It also requires the politics of reparations and transformative justice one that is grounded on acts of repair and healing to undo the past and current injury that is done to black life. Our struggle for dignity is taken for granted, but the structural violence is not inevitable. Rather, reimagination is part of our historical and current emancipatory project. Black feminists such as Audre Lorde, Alicia Gaza, Angela Davis, the Hakamahi River Collective, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Claudia Jones, Kimberly Crenshaw, and so many others have not only created that lexicon for love and care, they've also provided the tools for that reimagination. The future of black feminist logic is not just about living in a fortified ghetto, but about creating a robust intersectional platform for queer feminist logics through horizontal ways of expression. Excavating pleasure does not ignore vulnerabilities that exist, Rather, it works alongside revolutionary methods that are undoing and unlearning institutional racism, structural feminization, and climate change. It is through this medium that one implants and rewrites black politics from surviving to thriving. Love is dreaming, and dreaming can be a corrective for black people witnessing black death. Yet it will require emotional honesty and an end to white silence as part of our litany for survival. My act of love means teaching, surviving, writing, meditating, and fighting, and to the best of my ability, exercising joy unapologetically. Thank you. Freedom. Freedom.